Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Fred Blackwell. I'm the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, uh, and it is really uh, our pleasure to be hosting this conversation today with the Commonwealth Club on Black farming, food justice, and land stewardship. Uh, I'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting yet again another fantastic conversation and also thank all of the donors to uh, the San Francisco Foundation's Bay Area Leads Fund uh, for being able to uh, provide the kind of support that allows these things to happen and that partnership with the Commonwealth Club to bring uh, important issues that we're working on uh, to the audience uh, here. Uh, I'm going to be really brief because I want to get us to the main event really uh, quickly and get us into uh, conversations with a great panel of folks. But just to frame this conversation a little bit, as we just saw in the video, uh, our real North Star at the San Francisco Foundation uh, is about creating a greater degree of racial equity and economic inclusion in the Bay Area. Uh, and we like to provide that definition of equity that we had uh, in the video, because as of late, uh, the term equity has become almost uh, ubiquitous. I actually have a a friend who says that equity is the new coconut water, uh, where uh, you can see everybody talking about it, but you actually only see a few people drinking it. Um, and, you know, what we say is that, again, in that definition, uh, equity is about just and fair inclusion in society where everyone can participate, prosper, thrive, and reach their full potential. Uh, and I can't think of a, a better topic to kind of uh, exemplify what the work looks like than the topic that we are uh, unpacking today. Uh, you know, that definition of equity is a, a definition that is about what's on the horizon and not what is in uh, the rearview mirror. And a lot of people talk about the, the need when we think about that definition to actually realize it, to engage in imagination around what we can actually be as a society. And uh, the group of people that you're about to uh, hear from today and the topic that we're going to unpack is an example of that kind of imagination, reimagining uh, food justice, reimagining our relationship to land is really, I think, an important part of achieving uh, equity. So I'm really looking forward to uh, today's conversation. Uh, I'm going to step away in a minute here and hand it over uh, to one of our uh, donors at the San Francisco Foundation, uh, Natalie Bazil. Um, and we're excited that she's going to be doing this and excited that we have a donor that's been working on these kinds of issues uh, for a while now. Natalie is a San Francisco-based celebrated author whose new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, an anthology of essays, poems, uh, photos, and stories examining Black people's connection to America's land from emancipation to present is really, I think, an inspiring book. And she's written other books uh, and also been uh, a topic of uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, TV series. And so she's done a whole variety of things. And uh, we're excited to be able to hear uh, from her today. But we're also excited uh, to hear from the panelists. And they're going to talk a lot about their backgrounds and their organizations and the work that they're engaged in and why they're engaged in that work. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, on introductions. But first, uh, we're going to have Doria Robinson, who is the executive director of Urban Tilth. She is also a third-generation Richmond, uh, Californian, and co-founder and steering committee member of Richmond or Cooperation Richmond. Welcome, uh, Dorian. Thank you for being with us. Next is uh, Andrea 
Tally, did I get that right? Yes. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> uh, she is a food advocate and small business cooperator. She's passionate about making uh, nutrition-dense food accessible to people of color. Uh, and in 2017, became co-owner of Mandela Grocery Collaborative uh, or Cooperative, and she now uh, promotes cooperative ownership and nutrition education while setting high-quality, um, selling high-quality groceries and organic produce uh, in, the, in the dynamic West Oakland community. Uh, welcome, Andrea. Um, and I will hand it over uh, to you, Natalie. But before I do so, I want to encourage the audience to submit questions if you have them. Uh, you can submit them uh, in the YouTube chat feature, uh, and questions will be forwarded to Natalie so that, that can be incorporated into our conversation. So without any further ado, Natalie, I pass the mic to you. Thank you, Fred. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's a great honor for me to be here with uh, Doria and Andrea. Um, I have admired your work for many years, um, and it's nice to uh, have this opportunity to really chat with you both, to find out about the work that you're doing and um, kind of your vision for the future. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you both uh, to share your kind of your personal journeys into this uh, farming and, and food space, because, um, you know, I know that a, a lot of people in the audience might not be familiar with uh, <clears throat> the, the black farming um, uh, movement. I think a lot of people might not be as familiar with uh the work around cooperation and cooperative um, agriculture that you're doing, Andrea. So uh, if I could start by asking you, I think let, let's go with you first, Andrea, uh, if you could share a little bit of your personal journey and then talk a little bit about Mandela Food Co-op and the work that you're doing there, um, how you founded it, what your goals are, and what makes your organization so timely right now? And then we'll, we'll jump to Doria. Thank you. Thank you so much for that question. And it's an honor to be here speaking with you today and Doria. Um, my name is Andrea Talley, and um, I really found my way into the health food space um, back when I graduated college. So I grew up in Virginia, a small town in Virginia. It was a farming town. And I grew up eating really high quality food, fresh farmer's market, high quality organic produce. And, uh, you know, when I went away to college in Washington, D.C., I my mind was kind of blown by how limited my access was to um, really high quality food. And, um, you know, I went to Howard University and it was kind of challenging when I graduated just the, based on the area I was living, you know, how to get to a location where I could locate healthy food. And it wasn't just me. It was most of my friends and, you know, um, family at that time, too, who were having these challenges. So I just thought it really interesting. And um, later I started a green smoothie company where I, you know, leafy greens are my passion. <laughs> I, yeah, because they're just so nutrient dense and, you know, some of my aunties and stuff would be like, that's rabbit food. So I, I became very passionate and I am still very passionate about changing, you know, um, black people's perception around eating healthy, like almost. And that's one of the things that Mandela Grocery Cooperative does really beautifully. It's a, it's a safe space that almost um, allows, it gives permission 
to our customers to be healthy, prioritize your health. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's important. It's critical, actually. Wonderful. <clears throat> so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, the, what is Mandela Food Co-op and how did, how did that organization come to be? Sure. Uh, Mandela Grocery Cooperative is a small um, 2,000, a little bit over 2,000 square foot grocery store. And we're located in, they call it the lower bottoms of West Oakland. So we're right across the street from the West Oakland BART station. West Oakland is a well-documented food desert and was from, I believe, the 60s until 2009 when Mandela Grocery Cooperative opened its doors. So um, it was founded, kind of the, it kind of got started by three women in the neighborhood who really were sick and tired of having to get on the bus and transfer and, you know, to go, I think it was three, more than three miles to get to the nearest grocery store um, in the 90s. And so they started working together and um, kind of, you know, canvassing, getting neighbors together to open a small farmer's market that, that was just a, a stand in the West Oakland BART um, parking lot. That was like the very, very beginning origins of Mandela Grocery Co-op. Um, and so, you know, that was in the 90s. And then a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of organizations raised money and, and spoke this into fruition that there would be a grocery store right where we're located. And so in 2009, we opened our doors and um, the, com the community, the women who were kind of organizing the project, it was really important that to them that this project was worker owned, meaning and community owned. Um, so, so, you know, we st there started, there was this effort for the workers to fully democratically control the business. Interesting. Dory, let, let's jump to you. And then I, I want to get back to, uh, <clears throat> uh, another question, but, but can you share a little bit of your personal story, uh, with urban and how you got to urban tilt? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, first just really um, excited to be here today. It's really great to share a space with everyone here and Andrea and Natalie and everyone. Um, and then just to say, you know, um, like Fred mentioned, I'm a third generation Richmond resident. So my great grandparents moved to Richmond, California in the, in the forties and fifties, depending on which side of the family from rural places from Louisiana, from Northern Louisiana, a little town called Shady Grove and um, Iowa Des Moines, Iowa, and um, and came here just looking for 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 something better. You know, I think that especially um, the folks that are coming up from the South, from Louisiana and Arkansas, you know, they were very rural, very poor folks that, that came up, and it just wasn't opportunity. And there was Jim Crow, <laughs> and there was it was just it was just nothing nothing good, you know. So they they kind of came west looking for something more, and so I really come from, and the more I do this work, the more I realize that I really come from rural people. Like we're not migrating from, you know, big cities or anything like that. And when they came, they brought with them just passion for everything that they left behind, which was, you know, having small farms. <laughs> like they were all farmers. They grew their own food. They always had greens. They always had things in the yard. And when they came here, they did the same. Um, so you know, I did grow up here in the 80s, but the whole, you know, devastation of the crack epidemic and um, that was my block. You know, I lost every every person I grew up with died from gun violence between the 80s and the 90s, literally. 
uh, murdered. And so there's this combination in me of that reality, the reality of, you know, a city that's a, a food desert with one grocery store for 100,000 people, um, as well as this rich kind of Southern heritage of, 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 of people who, you know, with not much came up and came to the West, came to California and, and did a lot. Um, and so, you know, I actually came to Urban Tilth as a volunteer. <laughs> I got an email, <laughs> you know, that was like, you know, there's an old railway track or used to be railway track that literally like went up the spine of Richmond. It was like right up the middle of the city um, where my, between, it was actually the separating, separating where my grandparents lived and the church. My grandfather was a minister um, and where I grew up and <gasps> this old railway line, the old Santa Fe line, um, was defunct for years growing up and, and just full of rubble and trash and nefarious activities and literally the dividing line between gang territories and central and south side. Um, and, uh, and there was an email sent out by the founder of Park Guthrie, founder of Urban Health, who's Park Guthrie, um, who just took this beautiful moment to imagine that space as transformed 21 block long park with food growing that anybody could come and you could just walk down to a place called Berryland. You can pop berries in your mouth and, you know, it could just be this place where people actually come together instead of being separated. And as soon as I read that email, for whatever reason why I got it, I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, and I um and I just from that moment on just got really involved. I was a volunteer, and then we just kept kind of expanding and imagining um, what it is that we wanted to be transforming in Richmond, transforming these these you know forgotten lost spaces from you know just kind of desolate <laughs> and and diminished you know to full of life, thriving where people come together and actually feed ourselves. Um, and and by people, I mean that that transformation that we were envisioning was actually led for and by us, the people who live here, the people who grew up here, the people who have suffered here, you know, that we weren't going to let our suffering be where our story ends, but actually where it begins. So, um, yeah. And now Urban Tilth is 49 different residents running seven different programs, seven different sites, um, a profound engagement along the Richmond Greenway of open gleaning gardens and and a, a farm where we're feeding 500 families every week fresh produce that we grow. So it's been a, a long and crazy journey. You know, he hearing both of you <clears throat> kind of describe your the, the, the way you came to, to your work and hearing you reflect on, you know, shared histories as, as Black people where, where – your families come from the South, but maybe if they didn't have the financial means, they did have an appreciation for a certain quality of life, a certain quality of food. And Andrea, when you talk about, you know, your, your family in, in that small town, you know, growing up with a garden and growing up being able to, to pick fresh food. Um, Doria, when you talk about um, you know, this vision that, that kind of captivated your imagination. And it, it just reminds me, it just makes me think about 
I think that the the collective vision that we're all engaged in, and that is to reconnect black and brown people with these eating habits and practices that were really rooted in health and wellness. And, and I'm just really struck by, you know, that, that common link. And because I think so often in the, in the conversations that we have around food, and we're about to get to this question about what is a food desert and, and what is food apartheid? You know, I think it's essential that people really understand that, you know, black people in the South or the Midwest, wherever we were, had an appreciation for good, healthy food, right? And that we're trying to get back to that. So I'm just, I'm just so glad to hear that. I'm thinking about the Great Migration and how we're all, you know, kind of products of that too. And, and those habits and the traditions that, that Black people brought with them, right, as they left the South and migrated to these other places. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about um, this idea of, of food deserts and food apartheid. And, you know, Doria, if you could talk about that um, in, terms of, in terms of the work you're doing and kind of maybe if you, if you can define those terms for our audience. Yeah. So I think food desert is a, is, a t is a term that most people are pretty comfortable with now. You know, it's it basically means that, you know, in a specific area, you have to go a far distance to get healthy whole foods <laughs> um, that it's not easy to find. Right. You know, it, they're they're not easily they're not within your area. Um, and I think I think that people became really unsatisfied with that term because, you know, folks would come into the neighborhood and they would be like, but there's food here, you know, <laughs> and then like a corner store, you can get maybe a potato and an onion and some chips, you know, <laughs> and like that's calories, right? So food access movement, like the food insecurity movement, I think really focuses on calories. And I think that what we're focusing on and what we're interested in is something different. It's not just the raw calories, but it's actually the nutrient dense part of it. And so the term kind of shifted to food swamp because in order to recognize that in neighborhoods like in Richmond, in Oakland, and all across the country, you'll have a lack of healthy food, but just an abundance of junk food, like cheap junk food, you know, driven by uh, the, the commodities and, and the government subsidies, you know, feeding us things that are basically going to make us sick over time. They're going to make you sick, period. Uh, but they're cheap and you can fill up on them. And so the food swamp idea came from that. And then I think more recently, folks that are just doing this work and just like feeling like, at least for me, that, that change is just too slow, you know, it's too slow that we have to name that this stuff is actually not on accident, you know, like this is, this is on purpose. 
you know, whether it be on purpose because of business strategies of our, you know, kind of large national, you know, food conglomerate grocery store and whatnot, how they actually use, you know, equations to decide whether or not they're going to go into a neighborhood, um, whether or not there's a high enough, you know, income range, but not just income range, enough people with a certain level of education, you know, all these things dictate whether or not you get access to whole and healthy food based on the bottom line of profits, whether or not they're going to be able to make profit off of you. And um, I think that food apartheid speaks to the purposefulness of, of the situation that many low-income communities find themselves in. And, and not just Black communities, not just Black communities, but farming communities, rural communities. There's many people who actually fall into this kind of purposeful trap you know, and then, you know, just to kind of point at a little more things without going into it, a lot of those same food conglomerates, food companies are also the same people who are peddling the pharmaceuticals that we will need once we eat all the crap they want to feed us. And so it just really feels like there's a certain kind of servitude that low income people of color are, are forced into around not having autonomy around what we can put into our bodies. We're only served up a certain thing that leads us on a trail where we'll be dishing out every cent we have um, to, to live a poor quality life. So maybe just say it. <laughs> and and, and <clears throat> on the heels of that, Andrea, can you talk a little bit about your experience with Mandela in, in, specifically in West Oakland, which uh, was a was a community at one time that was known as the Harlem of the West, right? It was a thriving community with with stores and retail outlets and and um, uh, entertainment spaces and jazz clubs and restaurants, but also a lot it, it, it was a real community and and can you talk a little bit about uh, how it ha what happened in West Oakland, and then why why how it became a food desert, right? Why food apartheid was there, and then uh, talk a little bit about uh, what Mandela is offering, kind of in response to that. Sure. Yeah, what happened in West Oakland is really fascinating and heartbreaking um, and uh, reminiscent of what happened across in cities across the country. Um, you know, it was a beautiful community around uh, World War II times uh, because of the port, the position of the port. Um, you know, there were a lot of jobs available to Black uh, people who lived in West Oakland at that time. And, and then... Um, after the war, the jobs dried up. And, um, and then the government just started trying to solve this problem of, um, of um, you know, unemployment, underemployment um, with, with this black community. Like, what is the, you know, what are we going to do? The, this, this entity thinking, what are we going to do with this problem here, right? Um, and so they start a lot of urban renewal projects. Um, which are, you know, like they bulldozer people's houses to build the um, post office, which is a major post office. It's like a major shipping um, point. And so 
They are bulldozing houses to build BART, to build the post office, to the Cypress Freeway, which literally went drew a line between the West Oakland community and downtown Oakland. Um, even further cutting off access to the food that's in downtown Oakland. Um, you know, and so there are a few different issues happening. There's increased levels of air pollution for the community in West Oakland because of the port, because of the post office shipping center, because of the highways, um, limited access to healthy food. And, and then, you know, the urban development projects continue through the 60s and they are, um, you know, um, bulldozing homes, in, you know, individual homes to create public housing campuses. I think there are four or five different large public housing um, communities in this, in West Oakland, in this area. Um, and so, you know, it was just the government's attempt to help um, was just, uh, you know, it just completely destroyed the community. Um, and then, you know, but we're resilient, you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, you know, and, and of course there are beautiful things that are happening too simultaneously, like the Black Panther Party is organizing and, and resisting, you know? Um, so, and, you know, I, I believe out of that same spirit is, is Mandela Grocery Cooperative, the same idea of, you know, we can do better for our people. We're going to be the solution, right? So, um, so it's that same spirit and, um, yeah, so, you know, now Mandela is um, committed to not only just having high quality groceries, so that's groceries that don't have the preservatives and the, the chemicals and the additives um, in, in things like the chips, the cookies, the pasta sauces, the pasta, you know, um, the chicken, no antibiotics or, you know, those things, but also it's the produce. I'm particularly passionate about, I'm, I'm on the produce buying team at Mandela. So this is particularly a passion of mine, but, um, you know, we, we buy organic pesticide-free produce and we, we try very hard to get local, to source local produce from black and brown farmers. Um, because we recognize that we're in a unique position that we can have an economic, you know, impact on our, our farmers, black farmers around the area. So, um, so we're really able to bring that produce in, give it to the people. I mean, right now, like last week, we have beautiful collard greens, beautiful pesticide-free mustard greens, okra, you know, black-eyed peas, fresh black-eyed peas from, from Fresno. Wow. And so how, how is that sourcing produce from black and brown farmers? Because this is, you know, again, this is part of what, what I've been thinking about in my work, because I also think it's important for people to understand that there are people of color in the farming space, right? So often we, we have a tendency to think that the American farmer is, you know, is, a, is, is white, right? Specifically a white male, specifically an older white male, you know, I mean, that is, I think, the collective image that, that we uh, have, have been trained to imagine. And so to think that there are black and brown people who are farming, what is that like for you? And how do you find, how do you find the farmers? How do you find them to, to source the produce? 
Yeah, well, you you have to want to find them, right? You have to ask, talk to people, you know. um, Yeah, we are fortunate to be partnered with Farms to Grow, which is a beautiful organization based here in Oakland. Their job is to locate Black farmers. That's what they do. They find Black farmers all around California and support them and try to understand what do you need? How can we help you? So we're able to just, you know, I'm able to pick up the phone, call Elaine, (laughs) say, you know, what do your farmers have? You know, do you have strawberries, blackberries, you know, apples, what, you know, so, um, but I, from what I understand, it's incredibly challenging um, black farming right now. I mean, being a, a black farmer from, from the conversations that I have with Elaine, who every day of her life, she spends with farmers, black farmers, and like literally on the farm doing the work with them, you know, like that's part of what she does. And, um, and there's a huge technology divide. Um, there's a huge, uh, gap between black farmers, um, really running an agricultural business and not just farming like that, that mind shift almost of, you know, we have to make money off of this crop. And so let's plan a year ahead and, you know, all of these things and, and the, and then also the technology around it, having the email and, you know, um, so, so from what I understand, it's incredibly, um, uh, difficult, but because Mandela grocery cooperative is committed you know, we will be patient with our farmers. If the crop's not that great, you know, we'll communicate that, but we'll continue to order. Do you know what I mean? Because you have to, it has to be a real commitment. It can't be a finicky thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and what other, um, do you have other programs at Mandela? You have, I mean, do you have community programs? I know Doria has kind of a, a wealth of or a constellation of of programs that she's doing. And I'm going to circle back to her in a minute, but um, do you offer other things at Mandela co-op? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, We have a lot of different programs, ways to support um, the community that we're in. Um, So for example, we offer 15% off of your groceries. If you live in public housing, recognizing that there are, you know, five public housing uh, communities right around us. Um, You know, how can we encourage people to shop here? Because our, because the quality of our food is high, our prices are also higher than the convenience store or than a pack and save, you know? Um, And so we have to kind of incentivize um, and also educate um, our neighbors on why that is. Um, so we have a 15% off uh, to people who live in um, one of the um, public housing areas around us. We offer 50-50% off of California-grown produce um, it, when you're paying with EBT. So that's a program that is um, subsidized through the California Nutrition Incentive Program. Um, it's a grant from the state that we get reimbursed for that. Um, we offer Sunday service, which is two times a month. Our team will put together 50 to 75 grocery bags, and those will be full of food and sometimes uh, even a hot plate of food. 
but also sanitation like prod products because that's what we hear our houseless neighbors saying that they need um, napkins toiletries things like that um, so we'll hand those out to our houseless neighbors right here around west oakland and then we also have the karma jar which is literally just paying it forward we ask our our shoppers who can afford to put money into the karma jar to put it in and then people who can't afford to pay their complete bill this right now you know we pull money out and we cover people's grocery bill yeah okay wow amazing 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 and i'm just always so inspired by you know by by these stories and just the creativity you know and the vision that goes into um being being part of of a community uh you know Black people have a long history of working cooperatively, and, and I know you just described this. Um, I'm thinking of everything from Booker T. Watley and the, and the early CSA movement, um, Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative, the Black Panther Breakfast pro, you know, School Program. Uh, can you talk about, Doria, can you talk about kind of how that idea of cooperate cooperation has has influenced your work at at urban tilt and um even you know incorporating environmental sustainability into your farming practices yeah for sure um i think one of the things that i have to say just starting out is that you know growing up in richmond you don't have a rich kind of progressive education <laughs> So a lot of the, the the folks that you just mentioned, I didn't really learn about until college. You know, I didn't know I didn't know anything about them, um, except for the Black Panther Party because they're actually pretty pretty deep in Richmond, and my mom was involved, and my mom was also involved with the Women's Black Health um, Movement in in Oakland and Richmond. And so growing up, it was kind of growing up in a Bay Area that was very um, kind of grassroots politically radical, but I didn't really have like a, a, an understanding of a larger, um, how deep that history of ran. But I would say that the lessons that I learned from my grandparents and the elders in the church are the ones that are guiding my work today. Because one of the, one of the things I didn't mention is that, you know, when we grew up here, when we when people came to Richmond, they came together. They came like nine families up from the south. And when they got here, they didn't have a lot of money, but they pooled their money through the, the instrument of the church to help each other do things like buy each other's houses, build each other's houses. They put different church members through schools. They learned how to be like go, go into trades and they get them, you know, into like to be a, a, the, the electrician or the plumber or the whatever. And then they'd help build people's houses, you know, and it got to the point where, you know, in the, in the seventies, they were like, we want our own land. And so they collectively bought 320 acres in Fairfield. And that's where I grew up in my, in my weekends. What, what, wait, what do you mean? What, what do you, what do you mean? They bought 300 acres of land. What do you mean? They collectively bought 320 acres, which we still are own to this day collectively under, under, under the ownership of the nonprofit of the church. Um, and it's still operated by my, you know, 
family members and the other family members who originally came here, you know, that when I was growing up, we had horses and cows, it's a cattle ranch, um, horses and cows and hogs and, you know, rabbits and turkeys and chickens, a whole big chicken thing. And, the, you know, and then grew a whole separate section was just all produce. And so I have this association that with farming and, you know, the funny thing is, is that I never really put things together, what was happening and the power of what they were doing. Um, you know, their meetings, their trust of each other to be able to save up enough money to buy that much land and then collectively manage it over, you know, 50 years still in possession of Black folks. So I feel like those lessons, those the, the lessons that I was learning by being a part of that community where, you know, everybody woke up before dawn. Everybody had a chore. <laughs> everybody has stuff to do. You know, like everybody threw in or else, you know, things would fall apart. And, um, and really hard workers. And there was time, you know, like time unfolded time. There was so much more time at the ranch to be a whole human being <laughs> than there was ever in Richmond in the city. And I think that made just an indelible impression on me, you know, um, and, and just the power of like, when I talk about the ranch, I think oftentimes people will think of like some kind of scene from Dallas or some beautiful whatever, you know, and I'm like, oh no, you guys, oh no, we, these are poor, these are poor people. <laughs> these are people who are putting things together with whatever they have. The ranch is functional, you know, <laughs> like it, it isn't a, 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 it's something to view, but the, what it gives to you is so much more, so much deeper than some beautiful house, you know, like, and, um, and then just the skills you learn by, you know, getting, making sure the windmill still works and fixing the fences. And, you know, we, we would have our own, like a bunch of, you know, in most cases, people would consider the, the, the kids that I grew up with, you know, kind of, you know, hood rats, you know, run around Richmond, you know, but up there we put on our own rodeos. We rode bareback. We caught the horses every time because they were free, you know, like we would hurry up and get up in the morning so we could finish our chores so that we could convince my uncles to help us catch the horses so we could ride, you know, and we'd spend hours doing it. And I feel like the work that we're doing, that I am doing, that I'm moved to do at Urban Tilth is not just, yes, we're addressing this food access issue in Richmond, that no one's concerned with really getting people who live here healthy whole foods. You know, they, they throw some calories, but they're not really interested in getting us whole foods. And they're seriously not interested in actually looking at the economic situation that perpetuates that injustice on so many different levels and making sure that Black folks are a part, not just Black folks, but people of color, everyone who's falling victim to this are a part of that economic solution. They're not interested in that. And they're not even beginning to think about what we lose by being disconnected from the land by not having a home in the soil, you know, and, and not having space to need to be in trust relationships with each other, you know, where we're lifting a project that's so big, one person cannot lift it alone, you know? 
And, and if you don't want to lift it by force, you know, by, you know, kind of top down force, <laughs> you know, then you have to figure out how to do it together. And it's complex and it's messy and it's, you know, and it requires everyone to fully show up. And I feel like that is the work that the, that compound of three different things, the food access, the economic system, and the com complete and utter access and relationship with land where, you know, you are responsible to it, you know, you, you know, it's, I don't, it is hard, you know, and, and it's a reciprocal relationship is what Urban Tilt is really doing. Yes. 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 Well, and, and okay. You have now just taken this conversation to a whole other level, Doria, because <clears throat> what you're tap, what you are pointing to is what Andrea is, is working towards. It is a, it's what I'm trying to do with these books. It is about reminding people of our connection to the land and what that means right and so for you to describe this this area in fairfield that that people own 325 acres i really i really want to dig into this a little bit more in the, in the time that we have left before we go into questions let's talk about this let's talk about what it means to be connected to the soil you have just spoken to this and and i want to point to what happened at Urban Tilt on September 14th and, and the remarkable accomplishment that, that you and your team have pulled off. Can you talk, can you share with the audience this, this latest development with um, land ownership, stewardship, and, and what that means? Because that, that relationship for black and brown people is also very fraught, right? I mean, it's it's a very complicated issue. So can you can you talk about that a little bit and and what Urban Tilt's mission is? And I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to to navigate this. So it's it's it, on September fourteenth, after seven years of stewarding um, the land that our current farm is on, our production farm in here in Richmond, um, unincorporated North Richmond. Um, we were given, you know, the opportunity to purchase the land that we're on and basically hold it from here forward, you know, and and open up that whole that whole um, world of relationships. Um, and you know, it was the sale was approved. Um, the Board of Supervisors and now Urban Tilt as an organization, um, as a steward, is the owner of, of these acres of land right in the middle of the Bay Area. Um, and we're growing food. We have a whole vision of what needs to be kind of built out and developed on that land so we can continue to grow and get food out, but also grow ourselves, create that health hub, you know, that where people can really have a home, um, explore governance of land together. And, and I think when we first started, we started in a public park, all the spaces that we work in were all on public land. And I think the biggest thing that, that you would see and that people continue to kind of feel is that public spaces are not actually their spaces. You know, it's owned by the city. It's owned by some county. It's owned by the school district. It's some other entity, some force, they're not a part of the public. 
like we people of color are not the public. We're not, we're not, that's not us, you know, even though technically it is like we don't see ourselves in a collective. We so often when it comes to public resource, public space. And I feel like the first work that we were doing is trying to really question that and put people back in connection to land, even if it's just a park to start with. That's where we started on the Richmond Greenway. And, and to have people feel a sense that this is my place, that my, my only place isn't in the rented house that I'm going to be bounced from place to place to place to place. And who knows where I'll end up. <laughs> that, that's not my only place. But actually, I can actually find a place outside in this public space that is the hours and I'm a part of hours, like I matter. I'm a part of that. And that when you're out there in relationship to land, you start learning about all of the things that you actually need to know in order to be a good steward, in order to be in relationship with all the other beings that use that space, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I think it's important. I think it changes our mindsets. I feel like there has been a lot of work on the mindsets of low-income people of color, especially Black folks, not, not just due to our relationship, you know, with the way we got here, the way that African-Americans were, were stolen and, and brought here and, and all that, but also even just since migration, you know, and, and the kind of, you know, it feels like a vice on our spirit, you know, where we're only defined by the city and by the the pre-existing things in the city. And we've been taught that that's all there is. There's cement, there's concrete, there's your block. That's who you are. Be, be that. And we don't, we're not taught that that cement and that concrete and that block was put there by somebody with a plan, you know, and it can be taken away and it can be reimagined and it can be opened up and we can change the rules. We're not taught that we can change the rules that we have the power or the, or the, or the, or the, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's like proclivity. Like it's our place to change our rules. And I think that when we start putting, especially young people, a lot of urban tilth is run by young, young folks, you know, in a place where they are on the land and they can see how they can actually impact the land and how it could be bad if they don't do it with, with like understanding and knowledge, or it can be good and it can actually multiply positive cycles. It's like deep metaphors start to kind of unravel from the work. Um, and, I, and I just wanted to say that, you know, there's so much that I could talk for hours about this stuff. I'm just so passionate about it. But I wanted to say that, you know, Urban Tilt also works with BIPOC farmers to bring food into the city because we need that food. They're growing it. They need market. We need the food. We don't need to wait for some other force to decide to, you know, to bless us with the things we need to thrive. We can make, you know, we'll, you have to do it on purpose, like Andrea said, but we can start making those connections. So we work with seven different BIPOC farms, local, sustainable, chemical free, and bring that food directly into places where it's needed. We do free pop-up farm stands. We have our CSAs. We have one free CSA um, delivery. And then we have one that's subsidized by members. And I wanted to just kind of connect what I had been saying about 
land <laughs> and connecting with land. And I feel like it's our duty to keep as many of the people who are on land, Black farmers on land, on their land, <laughs> you know, by helping them, by keeping them, whatever. So the so that we can try to, you know, cultivate, nurture lineage, you know, of of people of color, of native peoples who are still on their lands. How can we support them and keep them there? Because we need that lineage to to understand where where we ultimately need to go. You know, we need those stories, that history, that knowledge of the land that takes generations to develop. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's our it's our passion and commitment to make sure that we're nurturing those cycles as well um, through our work. And I'm just going to leave it there because I feel like I've talked too much. No, you have it. You have it. This is, <laughs> no, you have synthesized. It's so great. And, and you have really brought together all of these issues, you know, that, that we are all working towards and trying to articulate, you know, I mean, it's, it's big. I could go on forever too. I'm going to turn to questions here. Um, there's a question that says all the issues you were talking about, the systemic challenges Dorian named are global. Do you see yourselves as part of the global food sovereignty movement? Who wants to, who wants to answer first? And, and who? I can go really quick and leave it to Andrea and just say, yes, I, I've interacted, we have interacted a lot with Olivia Campesina, um, been to different kind of cross trainings and whatnot, and have, have participated in um, um, the United Nations kind of functions and definitely traveled to South Africa, working with farmers there and learning from folks and, um, and other places in Mexico and, and other places, uh, Venezuela. And uh, yes, the answer is yes. And the answer is we come from a very different milieu being from one of the 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 sources of, of great pain for you know folks around the world you know so we have a i think we have a different we have a, a, a important and hard road role role to play in that international space and i'll leave it to andre andre what yeah, about you that's really interesting uh yeah i definitely do think that we are part of, you know, the global food sovereignty movement where we have partnered with um, a group or supported a group who wanted to open and has successfully opened the worker co-op in Mexico. But it's incredible the work that Urban Tilt has done with countries all over the world. We, we have it. Mandela has done a lot of that, you know, um, uh, but absolutely. And I think the important thing, you know, that kind of came to my mind is how food sovereignty is really hyper local. Yes, it's global. But it's really about like, you know, the land that you're on or that's right around you and getting food, you know, directly um, in your space that you currently occupy. So, but yes, absolutely. I like using the term translocal organizing, um, something that Movement Generation came up with where it, it, for me, it gives me the freedom to work hyper local. <laughs> like we are so grounded in Richmond. We're all about Richmond and we can organize translocally from our local location to, you know, local folks in Venezuela, you know, directly who are doing exactly what we're doing in their place. We can learn from each other and then kind of bring ideas back, you know, and um, it's a powerful notion that kind of grassroots folks to grassroots folks can help each other, you know, non-extractively build this movement. Um, yeah. 
It really is. It really is. You know what I also think is so interesting is to think about um, some of the new terms that have come, you know, that have become popular, right? Uh, You know, sustainable agriculture, right? Everybody's talking about that now. And, uh, you know, uh, what's another one? Uh, Carbon sequestration, right? And, And while those are all good terms, to describe what is happening now, I think it's also important to acknowledge that a lot of uh, communities of color have been practicing these methods for generations, you know, no-till agriculture, right? So I don't know if either of you have any thoughts about that, but I don't know, I'll just leave it there. Does, do, you have, do you have any thoughts you want to share? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems, it, yeah, go ahead, Andre. you take it. <laughs> I'm my thought might be a little bit of a tangent. I don't know if I um am directly answering what you're getting at, Natalie, but I, I'm just wanting to circle back to the farmers. Um, you know, they're just on my heart. Um, Mr. Scott and Mr. Sherman and some of the farmers. Mr. Eric has an apple orchard who I met last year who's incredible. Um, you know, and these are people who, you know, they love their land and, and many of them have stories that it has been passed down from a parent or from a grandparent. And, um, you know, and it, it's, it's really interesting to think that the challenge is, you know, they're in this position of how do I, I have to, I have to grow things and sell it. It's like, I have to, you know, make a commodity out of this thing that I love. So, you, you know, it's, um, it's just really, um, uh, it kind of makes me a little emotional, but then too, um, you know, then there, then there are additional challenges of like, well, certain places won't, um, buy produce if it's not certified organic. And and then there's that whole process and expensive process of getting certified. And so that I just think of, I mean, yes, there are a lot of that certified organic is one of the terms that kind of like came to my head um, and how that presents challenges to some of, um, you know, our farmers. We want to to stay on their land. We want them to keep that land. So I'm just kind of, I, I went on a tangent thinking about how, how do we get real and support, you know, and, and support um, the farmers. Yeah. For me, I think that I, when it kind of jumping off of what you just kind of put forward, Andrea, is, how do we how, how do we see the main purpose of food as feeding people <laughs> like it seems kind of crazy that it's so difficult to imagine to try to imagine a world where that is sustainable economically you know and you know currently in the current kind of agricultural economic uh construction it's not economic for you to just feed people healthy food. That's not, that's not the economic way, you know, like you have to, you know, kind of strip it of, of, of its, you know, best qualities and make it into some kind of, you know, cheap commodity, you know, or have the price so high (laughs) that only people, you know, who can afford it can get it. And it's not about feeding people at all. Like farming is not about feeding people at all. And I feel like that is a main fault in our culture, in our economic culture and capitalism that has has really just, um, has really, 
I'm losing the words that I want, has really just made uh, our, our life as humans on earth kind of uh, gone in the wrong direction. We've gone down a bad, a wrong road here, you know, and um, connected to a lot of the, of the, of the some trials and tribulations that we're experiencing today, like climate change and other things. And um, yeah. And just to say something about the words, um, when I first got started and I was learning about all the terms and everything, I got really excited. And then every couple of years, there'd be a new term that everyone was all about, you know, and then it'd be fighting over who had the right to use it. And, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So between permaculture and agroecology and sustainable ag and whatever, what exactly is the difference between all these, you know, and then who came up with it anyway? And it just, at some point I was just like, okay, all y'all academics who need to make a living off of fighting over these words, more power to you. <laughs> and I think I'm just going to continue like trying to write, you know. Let's get to the work. Let's get to the work. Okay, I want to make sure we get a couple of other questions in here as the, as the clock ticks down. Um, uh, Andre, I think you've answered this in part. Um, uh, a listener says, I learned incorrect. Uh, I learned that dark leafy greens were a staple in Black people's food in the 17 uh, to early 1900s. Andrea notes this is no longer true. Is this a regional issue? Urbanization? Something else? Do you have anything else that you want to share about that? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I I do think that it's a recent, relative, relatively recent issue. I mean. Um, it, but it really speaks to the disconnection from land. So as as long as, you know, the migration to the West and to the North and um, just to urban hubs, um, but then also, you know, just the, the commodities of the food industry, period, you know, marketing, the huge marketing machine of this is what people should eat and the price points, cheaper, cheaper is better, cheaper is better, of just further disconnects people from... Um, choosing a salad over a cheeseburger, you know? Um, and then, yeah, so you could go far into that. And then there's sodas and sh cereals and just sugar and, you know, so, you know, it's, uh, it's been a few, it's been a few generations now that uh, we've been um, disconnected, but, you know, we're making our way back. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's the tradition too of just growing your own greens and having certain things that you grow yourself and you always have for your plate is really also connected to land and land ownership. And so if you're moving from spot to spot or in public housing, where are you going to grow those greens? Where are you going to keep that tradition going? You know, so again, just, you know, connection to land does a lot of, uh, not having a connection does a lot of things besides, you know, not getting the feelies, you know, it actually, there's some practical things too. Okay, so we have just about two minutes. Um, so my last question, uh, I want to thank the audience for your great questions as we head towards the end of the program. Uh, I'd just like to ask both of you, uh, we'll start with Doria and then Andrea, what, are, what is your vision for the future? What is your hope for the future of Black farming organizations, yours in particular, or if you have a general thought, what do you see going forward? Or what would you like to see? I would like to see a reconnection of urban to rural communities, meaning every single place that's a food desert like Richmond, 
we go and we reconnect and we find those black farmers, we find those Latino farmers, we find those Native American farmers who are wanting to hold 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 space on the land. Um, and we can make that that vital life giving exchange between, you know, the displaced peoples who are finding themselves in these urban centers and really just deteriorating and those connections to land where there's life like just thriving, but they need support staying there. That's my my vision is to make that connection from rural, you know, reconnect rural urban to rural um, and creating an economy around it. So it is economically sustainable. Um, yeah. In short. Andrea. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that's that great. was great. That's great. That was perfect. Yeah. That's beautiful. And similar, similarly, you know, uh, my vision is to really um, economically support black farmers um, and native farmers and Latino farmers, but, but really my heart, you know, to black farmers, um, to, to support in a way of, um, helping fill that technology divide so that we're running agricultural businesses, because I do think that's gonna, that's key, you know, to, to, to stay on our lands. Um, and, uh, and that Mandela can be a, uh, a connection point because, and this has happened before where big organizations will ask us like, you know, where can we source a lot of potatoes and we can make that connection, you know? So um, just, you know, staying, staying connected to uh, farmers and really being able to talk and be real about the need. It's the, the need is huge. You know, it's going to take more than a few thousand dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars. It's, 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 it's huge. So I, my vision is that we move that boulder to the top of the mountain and then we push it down and then, you know, it's rolling, you know, <laughs> it's rolling and the farmers are making money and, and we're good. We're, we're, we feel secure on the land. So that's, that's what I see. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we could go on forever uh, and have a much longer conversation about these issues, but unfortunately that uh, brings our today's discussion to a close I'd like to thank you both again, Doria Robinson, Andrea Talley, for joining today's discussion. Uh, you can learn more about both organizations. Why don't you each share your websites or how people can find you? Um, and uh, we're going to be asking each of you, everybody in the audience will be receiving a giving guide, Care of the San Francisco Foundation, with information about how to give to Urban Tilth. Mandela Market Grocery, I'm sorry, Mandela Co Grocery Cooperative and other organizations supporting black farmers. Um, do you want to share your, your uh, website? Uh, yeah. Websites? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can learn more about Mandela Grocery Cooperative at online at mandelagrocery.coop.coop. We're also on Instagram and Facebook and all the social medias um, at Mandela Grocery. Similarly, you can learn more about our work at Urban Tilth here in Richmond, California at urbantilth.org, O-R-G. And again, we're on all the socials. We're at, at Urban Tilth. Um, yeah, thank you. Fantastic. And uh, for those of you who are interested, you can buy my book, uh, We Are Each Other's Harvest, anywhere books are sold, including Marcus Books in Oakland. Again, thank you both for a wonderful conversation. Thank you to the San Francisco Foundation. Uh, for funding today's program. 
this Commonwealth program is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Join us November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.